this is the Groundwork Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Jenkins, and in each episode, I will be sitting down with a farmer to discuss their background and their journey to farming. In this episode, I'm speaking to Yemi Amu about Oko Farms. Oko Farms is located in Brooklyn, New York, and was founded in 2013. Oko Farms is an aquaponics farm, which means it utilizes water instead of soil as a medium for growing plants. During this conversation, we cover topics such as food security, access to land, and why farming is so important to the greater good. This interview took place via telephone, so the sound can be a little shaky at moments. But I would encourage you to stick around for this very engaging conversation. First of all, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss Oko Farms and your background. I really appreciate it. Of course. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So to start, could you just give a little bit of a background on how you got into farming and, you know, your journey to starting your own farm? Sure. So I started farming, I think now in 2010 or 2009. Can't remember which year, but it was one of those years. And Initially, I started farming because I wanted to teach my clients. I was a nutrition educator and a culinary educator, and I wanted to teach my clients how to grow food. I thought at the time that if I teach them how to grow food, then aid increases access to uh, nutritious food, and then B, it just demystifies what healthy eating is. I was in grad school at the time, and I was majoring in um, nutrition behavior and modification under like a health ed degree. So how do you get people to change their diets and their lifestyle, right? Understanding that people already know that they're supposed to change, but need the tools and the skills and the confidence to actually make that change. Because there's a gap between knowing what to do and being able to do it, right? You know that you're supposed to, if you're a smoker, you know, you should stop smoking, but it's not as easy as it sounds, right? You need like help and support to get there. So that's what my um, degree was in. And I happened to be working at the time at um, a housing facility for formerly homeless, mentally ill adults. Wow. And I'd been hired, yeah, I'd been in Brooklyn, and I'd been hired to cook, what, a meal a day, five days a week for the residents, there were about 48 people in the building, and I was brought in as an organic chef, and when I was hired in 2006, I actually wasn't in grad school yet, I started grad school about six months after I was hired, and the idea was like, oh, you know, you cook these healthy meals every day um, and everyone would eat it. But no, the clients didn't care. They had other priorities. You know, these were formerly homeless. Right. So they've been like chronically homeless. Some of the residents have been homeless like 10 years, some five years. So you're going from like being in the shelter system to being, you know, to having your own place. That's a huge change, right? And then you're also like 
and then you're also independent or you're supposed to be independent, right? So the case managers who worked with me and they were doing the heavy lifting, so to speak, of supporting the clients in integrating into society, those who could integrate, those who felt comfortable enough integrating, and then those who are not yet at a point where they could integrate, supporting them in making that transition. So eating healthy was like, oh, God, girl, <laughs> we have other things to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand. Yeah. Right. We have, there's just other stuff. Um, and then what I realized after about six months, a year in, it was the men that were coming for the food, for the meal. Because it's like, oh, fine. I get this little girl to cook for me. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my I'll gosh. eat, you know, I'll eat whatever she makes and mm-hmm. that'll be it. So there's still a huge disconnect. It wasn't about being healthier. It wasn't about embracing a healthier diet. It was as long as I was there to make that one meal, they would eat it, but it wasn't part of their lives. Interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, I was, that's, that's actually what motivated me to go to grad school. Um, and I went specifically because I wanted a degree that, um, a degree in nutrition that recognized or acknowledged that there are like psychological factors and cultural factors and emotional factors and financial factors and um, all these other things that influence how we eat. It's not about whether or not you know how to count calories. You know, it's irrelevant if, you know, if culturally people around you eat a certain way or you just don't have time or your finances are limited or, you know, there are all of these things, you know, that influence the way that we eat. And I wanted a degree in nutrition that focused on that as opposed to the science Mm -hmm. of nutrition. And teachers college was really good at working with me to create the degree because nobody else had that degree. It was something that I created um, that was created for me. And most of my colleagues in grad school were actually working with drug addiction and smoking cessation. Wow. So you, you crafted your own degree, basically. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Because they're really, I mean, maybe there is now, but when you go into an nutrition degree, it, it really is very science-based. You were kind of looking for a way to kind of complete the circle of the nutrition aspect and then also dealing with these other factors like finances and social class. Mm -hmm. I mean, all these different factors that come into play when you're talking about healthier eating. Yeah. And I, and honestly, I was not concerned so much about the science of healthy eating because people have been having healthy diets since before science was a thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so it, it's, I, I, don't, I don't believe personally that you need to understand the science of food in order to eat healthily. I believe that people can eat healthily without understanding the science of food. It's just our relationship with food and how we view food and the types of food that are available to us. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're surrounded by junk food, that's what you're going to eat. If you're surrounded by vegetables, that's what you're going to eat. 
if you're surrounded by GMO foods, that's, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You should not need a degree in science or understanding of science to eat healthily. It's just, to me, it's irrelevant. Like my grandmother ate well, my great grandparents ate well, you know, and they didn't know. I mean, they understood their own type of science, but not like the Western idea of science. And they didn't need to know about calories to eat healthily. So I wanted a degree that acknowledged that, um, you know, the, the truth to me, at least the way that I was understanding nutrition at the time, and I started getting really frustrated is that a lot of people believe you read what you, you know, you read what, so you read the newspaper and it says eggs are bad for you. So then because a bunch of scientists said eggs are bad for you, so you stop eating eggs. And then 50 years later, they tell you eggs are good for you. Yeah. <laughs> and then you start eating eggs again. It's very confusing. It is. It's like, who do you believe and what do you believe? Exactly. Exactly. It's very confusing. So I just wanted to remove all of that and just focus on how do you adopt healthy lifestyles? How do you focus on incorporating more vegetables into your diet? It's like, it's called crowding out. How do you crowd out the not so good stuff and eat more of the great stuff? That's a really, I've never heard that concept. Yeah. It's a lot easier to do than to suddenly like, you know, take on this like insurmountable and do I use meat good for me or meat bad for me? You know, it's just too much. And Mm -hmm. most people don't, if we're honest, most of us don't know. Even the so-called experts don't know. Things change all the time. You know, I, there was a time when low low fat was the thing, right? Fat is what was killing everyone. Yeah. Now they're saying it's not fat and fat is good for you. Uh, it's sugar that's the enemy. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's, yeah, it's, it is very confusing, honestly. Like as someone who's not really a part of that world, it's just like, oh, what can I eat? Yeah, exactly. Thank you for providing that background. So you went to grad school and then you decided, when, when did you decide to start a farm or co-found a farm? So the first thing I did was I started farming in the building on the roof um, of the building I was working in because it was a housing facility for, like I said earlier, um, formerly homeless, mental ill adult. And it was a new building too. We all moved in at the same time. So the residents moved in in 2006 and all of us who worked there started working there about the same time that the residents moved in and the rooftop had been designed for whatever reason to be a green roof so I was chatting with one of my um, co-workers who was one of the case managers talking about like my frustration there was also frustration on the part of the the organization itself they weren't really funding my program I wasn't sure why they weren't funding it the way they were supposed to. I didn't have the support I needed to get my clients on this healthy path because even though healthy eating wasn't their priority, they really needed to eat healthily. People who are living with mental illness are also on drugs that negatively impact their health. Mm, Yeah. You know, so you take these drugs and then it's like, raises your high blood pressure or it causes, you know, it makes you more susceptible to heart disease and all of that stuff. And I needed support with the clients. Like how do we 
get them to eat healthier without making it a burden and without making them feel like they need to spend extra money, which they don't even have to begin with. Uh, and I was talking to one of the coworkers, and he, my coworkers, and he was like, well, why don't you rub food on the roof? It's supposed to be a brimless anyway. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, how do we even do that? And um, I mean, I'd grown, I grew up in Nigeria. I'd done agricultural science. I'd, like, grown food um, in seventh and eighth grade. But farming, growing food in Nigeria is, so different from New York City. Um, in even in Lagos, Lagos is a city, 20 million people at least. Um, it was just different. In in yeah. Lagos, you just put the seed in the ground and it grows. There's like no sauce. My mom always says, "All you have to just spit it out." <laughs> like you know, <laughs> just spit out the seeds. It'll be fine. It'll grow. Um, so it's totally different from growing food on a rooftop in New York City. I had to learn, you know, seasons, right? Seasonality. What can you grow when and how? And what does it mean to, like, build soil and to grow and raise beds? Because you're not growing in the ground. When you're on the roof, it's extreme. So it was a, a pretty big learning curve. Um, but what initially got us started is one of the clients passed away and my coworker suggested that we turn his bed, literally the bed it was sleeping on, into a raised bed and put it on the roof. Wow. Yeah, and that's how I got started. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that was it. I was like, okay, that sounds like a great idea. We built the bed, we took the bed apart, took it up to the roof, I constructed into a raised bed, got soil, put soil in it, and that was the first step. And at the time, I wasn't really thinking too deeply about it. It was just, we'll start growing food in this one. I'll figure things out. You know, we'll harvest, and I'll let the clients know that the produce came from the roof, and it'll get them more excited about eating healthier and then maybe we can make it bigger and then the clients can be coming up to the roof to get their vegetables. So they don't have to think about like going to buy vegetables. That mm -hmm. was my initial, that was my initial thought. And then coincidentally, really good friends of mine started a program called Adopt a Farm Box, which was taking raised beds into schools for gardening and using that raised bed for community building you know, to learn about health and wellness and connecting teachers and parents together. So we were doing both at the same time. Uh, and then the more I started working on the roof, eventually we got a, a, a grant that allowed us to expand. So we went from, I think in 2009, we had one raised bed. In 2010, we added a few more. And then in 2011, we got a grant that allowed us to just um, cover the entire 1,200 square feet of roof, of roof space. Um, and that yeah. was the point I realized, like, this is what I need to be doing for a living. This is not for a living, but this is just what I need to be doing with my life. It was an aha Like, it was moment. like a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't need to be talking to people about nutrition. I need to be creating access to healthy food like 
I should just be up here. I had clients that would come up to the roof with me and we would just talk. It became this therapeutic space where we would talk about stuff and we'd talk about their childhood and we'd talk about like their relationship with food and why they like this food and why they don't like that food. And it just made me more accessible to the clients in a way that it wasn't when I was talking to them in an office. I was also cooking with the clients. And so now we have this relationship that was both on the farm and in the kitchen. You know, we could harvest something on the farm, on the rooftop farm, and then take it to the kitchen and put it together. And I just felt like it's such a beautiful relationship. Then the more, the more I started, the, the more I got into farming, the less I was interested in the other aspects of my work. And then it became a problem. <laughs> What did, you, what did your job say? Were, were they like, oh, you're spending too much time doing this farming? Yeah, or? yeah essentially. I was just up on the roof constantly. I had, you know, I was either on the roof or in the kitchen. I was not interested in like any other aspect of my work or even socializing with my coworkers. I was just like in this. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this, this, this is why I wake up every day and it comes to this place and it's beautiful. And I was learning about myself, too, in the process. Like, look at me. Like, how am I doing this? How am I, like, doing these things? And how do I know that I can do this and this will happen? You know? It was amazing to me because I was discovering myself and nature at the same time. And it was just so marvelous. Like, wow, this is my life. And I get to do this. And I get to care for plants. And they get sick. And I treat them. <laughs> you know? And then they grow. And I eat. And people care. Um, people in the community would um, also come volunteer on the roof. So then it turned into this, like, community engagement piece. And, you know, our clients, when the building went up, it was a huge problem in the neighborhood, you know, how people can be, we don't want to be living next to people with mental illness. What does it do to our property value? Blah, 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 blah. The garden did something else. The garden was like, oh, we want to go to this space. And then suddenly the, the community members were engaging with our clients in the same space. And it was great. It was great. So that that was... So it kind of brought everyone together. It really did. It really did. And in ways that we didn't expect. That's great. And then from there, since you you mentioned that your your job was kind of having an issue with you, you know, being on the roof so much, is that when you you started to transition to, you know, creating your own space? Um, Well, initially, I was just like, I need my own space. That was just like the running thing in my mind every day. I need my own space. I need my own space. I need my own space. And then someone in the neighborhood, this guy, showed up one day on the roof and said, have you ever thought about hydroponics? And I went, ah, no. I'm not, what? No. I was like super dismissive about it. I was like, yeah, mm, no, not interested. Um, and then he said, no, but really, I'm not, he said, no, he said, have you ever heard of aquaponics is what he said to me. And my response was, I know what hydroponics is. I'm not interested. And he said, no, I didn't say hydroponics. I said aquaponics with fish. And I went, hmm, 
what are you talking about? And he was like, yeah, you raise fish and vegetables together. And I was like, wait, what? He was like, yeah, you raise the fish and you raise the vegetables together in water. You never have to worry about watering your plants. And then you could also provide your clients with fish, fresh fish. And I was like, what? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I had never heard of aquaponics, well, actually. It's, it's like being rediscovered. So the idea of raising fish in an urban area was not that new to me because one of my neighbors in, in Lagos was raising catfish in her back, in the front of her house. So I knew that that was possible because I'd seen it. But she told me that it wasn't sustainable because it used too much water. She was like, I waste so much water. Water is too expensive. And for someone who grew up in Lagos, I know what that means because we bought the water that we drank. Not just water that we drink when I was growing up. We also bought the water that we bathed with. Hmm. You know, this guy would show up like once a month and fill up this huge tank in the back of the house. And that's the water we used to flush the toilet. That's the water we used to bathe and wash dishes and cook with. And then we would buy water in bottles to drink. Oh. So I understood the import, like that water thing and water it being wasteful. I was like, yeah, girl, I get it. So when Jonathan is the name of the guy who was like, yeah, go paint and you recycle water, you reuse water, that struck home to me. I was like, wait, what? You get to save water? That's amazing. Because that's, I mean, you're, that means you don't have to continuously put water into it. It's not the same system that your, that your neighbor had set up um, in Lagos. So. Exactly. So that was like my initial, like, wait a minute. It was the water thing to me. Um, I've been here 22 years and I'm still amazed when I can just flush the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I take for granted. Yeah. And it, it's not like we didn't have plumbing and all that, but you know what? Sometimes we were broke. Sometimes my mother, my mom were like, we're running low on money this month, you know? So be careful how you flush. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like those little things here, you never have to think about that. The water is always, is always there. Um, yeah. Or there's no electricity for a couple of days. So then we actually don't have water. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is which happened quite a bit when I was growing up, and you know you take those showers and they're not quite showers; they fill up a bucket with water, and then you scrub yourself and then you pour water. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> so yeah, so I that was in me, you know. So saving water is a big deal to me. That is what struck me about aquaponics, and then also the fact that I could raise fish. And I'm like, oh, okay, I could actually bring fish to New York City. I could provide my clients with fresh fish. That's really cool. Like, we're already providing them with vegetables, and they loved it. And we're growing flowers and fruits, and they loved it. To be able to add fish to that would be amazing. And then I started this journey of, like, learning about aquaponics and how it works and why it works. And I built, like, a model system on the roof, and then another one and then I got fired oh my gosh (laughs) yeah I got fired the reason I got fired is still a little hazy to me but I think the gist of it is that I was just too involved in the farming piece yeah and I was too 
independent. I don't know how to explain it. I was just doing what I wanted. I was making the job my own. And I was doing what I wanted. And the, yeah, that did not sit well with the organization. I mean, in that case, it seems like you were you were fitting outside of the boundaries that, that they had set for you at that particular position. And even if it's positive, like to me, everything that you do, you were doing sounded extremely positive. Sometimes companies can be like, well, no, this isn't what we hired her for, <laughs> which oh, even if you're doing a good thing, which is which is frustrating. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, you're providing this service to the the residents and they're enjoying it and you're bringing the community together. And at the end of the day, it's all about how you fit in the company and if what you're doing on paper is what they want you to do. So. I mean, it's a, I guess it was a blessing in disguise because obviously you've moved on to something much greater. So it totally was. I mean, I was devastated when it happened, but it was a blessing in disguise because after I got over feeling sorry for myself, <laughs> you know, the answer was like, well, the question was like, what's next? Mm-hmm. What's next? And then I knew that what's next couldn't necessarily be. I didn't want to work for someone else and find myself in the same position where like I would get excited about growing and doing things, you know, and someone would tell me, well, you have to work within this box. It's just not how I function. I don't. Yeah. I mean, then we can talk a little more about that, but it's just not how I function. Like if I'm doing something good. Encourage me, you know, be supportive. Don't like, like, I think the CEO of the organization told me, you think you own this place. And I was like, really? That's so not the point. But okay, sir, thank you. I think, yeah, that sounds like the case of where, you know, people are, where they see you doing something great. Maybe they were like, oh, she's gaining too much attention for, I don't know. Who knows what it could have been, like, honestly. Yeah, it, it was. I think it was just like I was the only person. Everyone else was doing exactly what they were supposed to do and nothing more and nothing less. Mm. And then here I was doing all this extra stuff. Because even my coworkers were like, you're doing too much. And I was like, what? (laughs) What does that even mean? I'll never forget. um, One of my coworkers was like, I don't know what the big deal is. Just open a can of Chef Boyardee and like serve it. What's the big deal? And I was like, So I think it was just the mentality and the culture of the place. But then I was really careful that, you know, now I now I just want to do more. You know, and I don't want anyone to restrict me. I did still work for people. I worked part time for other organizations. But then I took time to just really immerse myself in learning and in studying aquaponics as much as possible. I lived in Florida for a short time on an aquaponics farm. And that was life changing for me because the man that was that ran the place was like a seventy something old German man um, who grew up in Germany during World War II, and um, is very passionate about farming. Because as a little boy, I think he said he was the youngest of ten children in Germany in World War II, and throughout the war they were starving. Wow! And that's not a story you hear often. So he's all about hunger and ending hunger and teaching people about aquaponics because he really believes that if people know how to grow food, 
they're, they're not going to go hungry. And he's so passionate about it. So that's who I learned from. I learned from him and a bunch of other amazing people who do great work. These guys go like all over the world, especially to um, developing countries and places where people have um, difficulty with food and teach aquaponics. Not just teach, but like work with the community to build an aquaponics farm. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That, yeah. So that drew me. I heard his story. I went to the first aquaponics conference in Florida. I heard a story. I was like, this is the man I want to learn from. And then I spent time on his farm. I learned a lot, traveled quite a bit, especially to the you know, places in the Midwest that were, you know, whose climates were similar to um, New York climate. Mm-hmm. Um, learned from them, read a lot of books, and then decided, all right, it's time to do this thing. And Jonathan and I actually started it together. Mm. We, yeah, we got land from the city because he was a chef and he was really into the design piece. He just really wanted to design this aquaponic system. And I really was like, I just want to grow food. I just want to have a space where I can grow food and I can demonstrate to people this, not a new way, but this really old way of growing food but bringing it into a more urban context and to be able to show people that you can also raise fish in the city. We're doing chickens. Um, we're doing bees. And, you know, I've done bees. I've done chickens. I've done wow. ducks. Ducks are not legal, but I did them anyway. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, just adding fish to the mix, I thought would be this is really cool. And when we started, honestly, it was just to demonstrate. That was it. I don't really think I thought beyond the demonstration piece. I thought, yeah, you know, we'll show aquaponics and then we'll grow some food and we'll sell it. That was it. Yeah. And we started the farm in, in 2013. Wow. So it's been five years? Five years. Yeah. This will be our sixth season this year. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And I, like, I still can't really wrap my head around the idea of... Using fish to grow vegetables. Like, could you explain that? Yeah. So think about it like this, right? Vegetables are plants. Like, all plants are the same. So this is our, when I, when I uh, teach kids, I say, so think about it, right? If you think about the bodies, the, the Earth's natural bodies of water, what do you find? Think about the ocean. What do you see in the ocean? Fish, right? Do you also have, what else do you see there? Like plants, blah, blah, blah. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. When you have a fish tank at home, what you usually do, right, is you change that fish water regularly because it gets dirty. And they're like, okay, yeah. So when you think about all the fish in the ocean, does that water empty out because the fish are like making waste? No, no it never does. I, you don't see ponds emptying out <laughs> or, or, um, lakes or oceans emptying out <laughs> this kid once told me what well, god is doing it obviously i said yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah they don't empty out even though they're millions you know of ocean life those those creatures are constantly pooping they like making waste they're breathing in and out which is also waste they're urinating which is also waste but it doesn't get poured out the water doesn't get emptied out and filled back up The reason that that happens is because they're plants in the ocean. They're microscopic plants. They are the ones that you can see like algae. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, they're all types of plants in the ocean that are doing that work. 
of filtering out that fish waste and growing in the process. So all aquaponics is, is just copying that process, mm. you know, and to even like make it even larger, put it on a larger scale, the earth is mostly water. The earth is about 70% water, right? And most of it is ocean with all types of fish and all types of plants. And those plants are constantly filtering mm -hmm. water for the fish. That's what they're doing below. But on top, they're also photosynthesizing, right? They're capturing sunlight and carbon dioxide, and they're releasing oxygen as a byproduct. So this system of aquaponics mm -hmm. is directly related to our ability to breathe. Wow. So it's just something that happens naturally. It's incredible. In nature. We're just doing it by growing vegetables. You know, that fish waste is converted into plant food by bacteria. Mm -hmm. The same bacteria that is in the ocean or in rivers and in lakes same group of bacteria, same community of bacteria, they feed on that fish waste and produce nitrogen as a byproduct. The plants take up the nitrogen through their roots. That nitrogen supports leaf development. Those leaves capture sunlight and carbon dioxide to create oxygen that they put out into the environment. Wow. Incredible. Super naturally occurring system. And people have been... Um, growing food like this for centuries is not necessarily a popular way of growing food anymore, but the Native Americans, the Aztecs specifically, mm -hmm. grew food that way. Native Hawaiians did, the Chinese did, and to some extent also the Egyptians. Because it makes sense. If you live by water and you have fish growing in the water and you know that fish waste is fertilizer, you're going to bring your vegetables to the water. So is it similar to compost? So that fish waste would be something, it's providing um, nutrients to the plants. Exactly. And you have bacteria in compost. You have mic all types of microbial uh, life in a compost bin that breaks down that waste. Right? It's the same thing that happens in, in aquaponics, except it's happening in water because the fish live in the water. That is so cool. Like, I've never heard it explained that way. Yeah. <laughs> now I can have a conversation about someone about this, <laughs> thanks to you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so, Great. I've done my job. <laughs> so, what about so what happens with the fish? Do you you sell the fish, or do you do you, like what do the fish just stay in there permanently? Or like I I guess I'm because you said freshwater fish. This isn't like yeah freshwater fish. Because if you want to do yeah, if you want to do vegetables, then you do freshwater fish because vegetable plants can't handle salt. If you wanted to do kelp. Or some, or some other type of like algae or seaweed, then you could do saltwater fish. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And where do you get the fish? Where do we get the fish? Oh, girl, that's the thing when you live in New York City. Where do you get the fish? So I've gotten fish from different places. We've gotten fish from hatcheries of state that. Um, have huge ponds, right? And these people who have huge ponds upstate New York, Pennsylvania area, 
um, and we go there in April and we get babies, fingerlings from them. I have learned that that is not a good thing to do because it's just complicated. The pond ecosystem is very different from our ecosystem. Sometimes you end up introducing things into into your system. That's not so great. It's a little complicated. So we no longer do that. We've also gotten fish. The year I did the prawns, freshwater prawns, I got them from Texas, I think. Yeah, from Texas. We've, we've had fish shipped up. It sucks. But that's the, that's the, so either we're driving upstate or it's been, or they're being shipped to us. And I've also gotten them from a high school in Flushing, Queens, which is wow. uh, John Bound. Yeah, it's an agricultural high school. The place is beyond amazing. I can't even tell you how amazing that place is. And they have a classroom where they're raising tilapia indoors, which is pretty cool. They have an aquaculture classroom. Yeah, we've gotten fish from them. So sourcing fish has been a little bit of a difficulty for us because we don't have a hatchery. A hatchery is like where you have a breeding colony and you raise your, you know, you get your own eggs and you raise them from scratch. We're fully outside. We don't have an indoor space. So it's more difficult to do a hatchery. But we do get fish every year. We have fish that stay in our system permanently, the goldfish and koi. They're pretty, they're happy to look at, <laughs> and they overwinter, so they stay on the farm over the winter because usually we harvest the edible fish at the end of the season. So it's nice to have the goldfish and koi to like start off the season with. You know, they start eating and, you know, providing the fertilizer to get the system going while we're working on bringing the other fish in. We don't bring new fish in until about late April, early May. This year, it's been particularly cold. Do you wait to bring in the new fish? You yeah. Have to, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is why it's nice to have the goldfish and koi there. Because it allows us to, you know, they'll start producing the fertilizer and we can get plants in the system before May. So you mentioned you don't have a hatchery. Um, what other challenges do you have with a farm like this? Is it like, be it financial or structural or timing? Like, is there anything particular that you, that you can think of? Yeah, a lot. I mean, um, just, we need more land, you know, land in New York city is so expensive. So urban farming is so irrational. There's no, there's no space for it. So just having a bigger space so that we can do more. We don't, grow fish to sell because we can't provide it on a consistent basis. We don't have enough room. We're at 2,500 square feet. So we don't have enough room to be able to provide fish, you know, every month or, you know, so we only do like one harvest a year. That really doesn't work well for people. You know, it's like, oh, I have a hundred fish and I have like 500 fish and I need to sell all one. You know what I mean? So that's been a challenge. So we don't do a lot of edible fish for that reason. The plus side is we just incorporate them into workshops. Um, and then we also do like a party. We do parties. I have friends that are chefs. Um, they'll do dinners and we'll, you know, serve the fish that way. So we're doing it in like smaller ways. In a lot of ways, it's actually good because it gets people used to the idea of fish farming. Because fish farming has a lot of negative connotations. 
So, you know, they'll eat the fish that was raised in Brooklyn and they'll learn about how it was raised and it changes people's minds a little bit about fish farming. But yeah, land, land is like huge challenge, especially if you want to farm in the city. If I wanted to go upstate, Mm -hmm. that would not be a problem necessarily because there's so much land up there. Um, But I think it's important to be in the city. We need more green spaces in the city and we need to have these conversations about food and how food is grown in urban areas. I meet so many kids that have no idea where food comes from. They they think it comes from either the internet or the supermarket. I actually asked this group of kids, I know that you get food from the supermarket, but before the supermarket, where did it come from? And it was a blank stare, like 20 kids, blank stare, and one of them goes the internet? Yeah. <laughs> like, we wow. need to have more, yeah. It was like the internet, like, I guess the internet. Um, and with another group of kids, I said, I'm a farmer, so where do you think I go every day? And this kid goes to the supermarket. <laughs> like, uh, like, you're a farmer, so you go pick up your produce at the at the supermarket. And even, I'm sure if you even ask some adults, they probably wouldn't even... They probably haven't thought about it. Right. Oh, where did my, where did this food come from? Right. Where did the food in the grocery store come right. from? There's like a disconnect huge, there. Huge, huge. And more and more every day too, you know? Because also traceability is a big thing with food. Like stuff we get in the supermarket, we don't know where it's coming from, especially around seafood. Mm. There are all these articles about how like seafood, like seafood traceability is a problem. What does that mean? So where was the original origin of the fish that you're eating? Oh. Most supermarkets can't even tell you. So they'll say it's from Chile. Yeah, okay, fine, Chile. What farm in Chile? They can't tell you. Right? If it's, if it's farm fish, what farm in Chile? They don't know. I think Costco is one of the few places, Costco, I think Whole Foods are really big on traceability and knowing exactly where the fish is coming from. Because what happens is they work with people who get fish from different places, right? So they're like several middlemen <laughs> along the way. And no one knows the actual origin, like what farm, what country. Sometimes they say it's from Chile, but it's not from Chile. It's actually from Thailand because along the way, things get mixed up. I, that's the first time I've ever heard that. Mm-hmm. So there's an outbreak or, you know, there's something. How do you trace it to where it came from? If there's like a some bacteria or some virus or something, I don't know. You know how there's, there's Ex- food. Exa- yeah. Exactly. You can't trace it then. Yeah, exactly. You can't. Um, so even having that, even that, like, where does the food eat come from? Where does the fish eat come from? Most of us don't know. We only know what we're told, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If you go to Whole Foods, it's labeled. But how many other places do you go to that it's labeled? (laughs) Yeah, nowhere. Seriously, you never know. Yeah, you don't know. You just like, right, okay. Yeah, and plus, Whole Foods is more expensive. I mean, not everyone can have that ability to know where their food is coming from. Exactly. Sometimes you just can't shop at Whole Foods as much as I would like to every single time. 
No, that's real. <laughs> Even like if you're doing Trader Joe's, you just like you. I always look at when I go there. I always, I always look at where things come from, like Argentina, Brazil, New Zealand. Why is that food coming from so far away? New Zealand? It's not. It's really far. And it also directly impacts food security. Because if the food has to come from so far away and something happens and it can't be shipped, then we go hungry. So many, it's like a ripple effect. If one, if one thing happens and the next thing happens and that, then it just keeps causing all these ripples throughout the entire system. Exactly. And when I was studying aquaponics in Florida, that was what like my, my teachers would emphasize all the time, how locally grown food is so important. You know, having access to food is so important. You don't have to grow it, but if your neighbor grows food, you know, if there are people in your community who grow food and know how to grow food, how mm-hmm. important that is, you know, because in a time of crisis, you need that, you know? Mm-hmm. So land, <laughs> access, and space to grow food is like a huge, I think for most farmers in the city, unless they're like a big nonprofit, land is, access to land to grow food is a big, the biggest challenge. For me specifically, in addition to land, I'm outdoors, which I love, <laughs> but I it would also if I had enough space, I think I would also have like maybe an indoor space where I could do some other things. That's another challenge. Um, you know, because we're in a small space, selling produce doesn't actually keep us in business. That's a challenge. Um, the way that we've overcome it is thankfully, I don't really care so much about the growing food for, for profit piece. I care more about the educational piece and empowering people with like knowledge and skills piece. So, you know, we've been able to just use that as an opportunity to just ramp up the the teaching aspect and growing, um, setting up spaces for people who want to grow food. Uh, I'm focusing on that. That's a huge lesson that I've learned is, it's more important to have a lot of different people that can grow food than for you to be the only one that's growing food. I'm so happy you said that. Having more people grow food rather than having one person grow food for a bunch of people. It's, it's self-reliance. Exactly. So, you know, even, so even though like, being able to grow a lot of food and make money is a challenge, um, it's opened my eyes to like really why you do this work and what is the value of this work and, you know, empowering people with information. That's why I even started in the first place. I didn't start farming because I wanted to sell produce. Um, I thought that that's what I was supposed to do. And then when I hit that wall of, you know what, I could spend all my time and energy growing this food for to sell and I still won't make any money. So, and it's also not what I want to do. So why am I doing it? Um, because you, you do feel that pressure. It's like, oh, like you're not a farmer unless you're growing food and selling to people. The education portion is like extremely important to that, to what you're doing. It's, it's not just about 
giving people food, you're providing people with knowledge so that they can go and do the same thing. Yeah, that is that is way more important because there are not that many of us left with that knowledge. And that's just what it is. How many people want to, quote unquote, work the land? It's really hard work. That's another challenge. It's very hard work. It's being out in the cold. You know, it's April. I can't be like, oh, I'll wait until it's warm before I go outside. No, I have to be out there in that cold, whether I like it or not. Um, and then when it's 100 degrees outside, mm-hmm. I, am, I have to be out there whether I like it or not. It's really hard work, but at the same time, it's valuable work. And that knowledge cannot die. It just cannot. The knowledge, the skill, the art, the science of it can't die because it's so, like you said, there's a ripple effect. If you understand how food grows, if you under, then it, it also means you understand soil, if you're working in soil. Mm-hmm. If you're working in soil, it means you, un, you understand microbes. Right? And aquaponics is the same thing. Like you understand how things live. You understand what it requires for them to live. You also you also care about pollinators. You care about the climate. You care about you start caring about everything else and you see how it's all connected. And you start seeing yourself as part of nature. So you're less likely to use chemicals. You're less likely to want to pollute. You're, you know, you're mm-hmm. thinking all this stuff. It's not just the food piece. Everything else you're thinking about, you know, you can't separate food farming from the environment, right? They're so linked. If you understand that the, it's like that nitrogen cycle in the ocean that allows us to breathe, you're, you're more likely going to want to protect the ocean. You're, you don't want oil spills. You don't want fish dying in the ocean because you understand how important that cycle is. Because you might think, oh, what's a big deal if a bunch of fish die? I, I don't eat fish anyway, <laughs> right? But no. I hope no one thinks that way. Like, oh, you know, or like you care only about whales because they're so cute. <laughs> but you know what? You remove any other fish in that, eat in that uh, ecosystem, then there's a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. You, then you care about microbes and, and bacteria because you realize how important bacteria is. You start learning that not all bacteria will kill you, and they're so important. They, I call them our ancestors, and without them, we wouldn't be here, literally. They're the reason we exist. Um, you start caring about all these other things. That's why that knowledge and, and skill is so important, because it's connected to everything else. I mean, this is why your work is so important because people need to hear this stuff and see how impactful the work is and understand that we need to continue this as long as possible. It can't just be one person doing it. It has to be many people doing this and working together to to create this system. Um, I wanted to hear about some of your challenges as a Black woman in this space. When I look online and I type in farmer, and I go to images, I don't see, I don't see Black people, and I definitely don't see Black women. So can you speak to that? Yeah. So on some level, in New York City, I know a lot of women, who, a lot of women of color who farm. Mm-hmm. Whether they're community gardeners, whether they work for, for nonprofits, like I know a few. However, I'm also very well aware that 
even in the city, when you say farmer, like people are not, people are thinking the, usually thinking like a white person in plaid, right? The biggest farms in New York, like Brooklyn Grange and, you know, all the others, like Gotham Greens and the other ones, they're all like white people or men, right? Usually men Mm -hmm. are like the forefront. I'm very aware of that. So the challenge for me personally Mm -hmm. is that sometimes it feels lonely. (laughs) It can be lonely, I think, is is a challenge because most of the other people of color who are like working as farmers are not doing aquaponics. So that's one of, that's a major challenge. They're not doing aquaponics. They don't understand it. And in a lot of ways, they're very skeptical about it. So it can be very lonely in that sense. Um, the other people in New York or really everyone else that I know that does aquaponics are men. They're men and they're white men and they're all about like technology and they think technology is going to save the world. And they don't talk about aquaponics the way I do. To them, it's about efficiency. You know, it's, you build this thing, you put it indoors, it's efficient, it can give wow. you this amount of food. And it'll pump out at this time. And I can't see why people are so like skeptical. So they're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) People, you know, because if you're coming from a soil background or any other background, you're thinking like, you know, soil, it's natural, it's this, it's that. And these guys are talking about efficiency and pumps and lights and all this stuff. So it can get really lonely because I don't speak the same language that these men speak. And then with the soil farmers, I, I speak their language. But that connection is not there. I recently taught a class with mostly women of color, and I got a lot of resistance. Like, this is not natural. Mm-hmm. Plants are not supposed to grow this way. You know, like that, like heavy mm-hmm. resistance. And I had to do so much work to be like, all these things that you care about and how you think about soil and, and how soil is living and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the work that I do. You know, my fish are living. You know, they're living nutrient generators. The microbes in my system, they're living things. You know, if I kill the microbes, I don't have aquaponics, you know, and they're natural and more natural than a lot of you actually are because I have to constantly balance the needs of three living organisms, you know, so I'm constantly having to prove myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so I'm in a weird space because I don't fit in with either world completely. Yeah. You know, I use a pump to move my water. So it's like, oh, well, that's kind of weird. You're using a machine. <laughs> and, but I don't speak technology or science like these men. So also I don't fit in. You know, when I start talking about like bacteria and ancestors, you're like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> but do you think, like, do you think that because you went to graduate school for this specialized degree and then you kind of evolved, like it evolved into you starting a farm. I think that's why you, you kind of created your own lane, really. Like you're not really, or you're not talking about the technology aspect of it, but you just have a fresh perspective and you have the knowledge. I would rather hear it from you than from them, to be honest. Thank you. These guys raise a lot of money. They raise a lot of money. So that's another thing is that I'm not appealing to investors who are willing to like 
dump like $200 million into the latest aquaponics, you know, and that's the reality too of Mm -hmm. doing this work is I keep seeing these young men, you know, raising $200 million, $50 million, whatever million dollars Mm -hmm. to do this work because it's technology and it's the future. This is the language that people use. Technology, the the future, efficient, hyper-local, you know, like there's certain buzzwords that they, they throw out there and then they raise 50 million, there is 200 million, there is, you know, it's, it's happening every day. And it's like, well, damn. I mean, you guys are doing the same thing, but because they're marketing it a certain way and have this tech speak, or I, I don't know if that's a real thing, but they, it just seems like there are people are, people who are in that tech world flock to the same thing that they always see. Yeah. It's clean. There are apps, you know, it's clean. There are all these like um, the gadgets and apps that read all this stuff. You know, it, it is appealing. I can see why it's appealing. And I'm just like, no, you feed the fish and, you know, <laughs> and you, <laughs> you, you feed the fish, you keep the water, make sure you don't lose it, you care for the bacteria. It's important. Like, you know, that's how I speak. And they're talking about gadgets and all these fancy things that monitor. Ooh, that's another one. They like monitor everything and it's like controlled environment. And so they get to raise a lot of money, which I'm having to build myself up brick by brick. Wow. So I guess you've talked about how you're perceived by other people. How does your family feel about your you becoming a farmer or choosing to be a farmer? Uh, right now, because... I, I have, like, magazine articles thrown out here and there, like little ones. My mom's, like, super proud and excited. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. But, yeah. But before that, she won't admit it, but it was almost like you're, you're in America, you're not doing anything with your life. Mm. Like, that was it. you know, what are you doing with your life? Come back to Nigeria. You get a good job at a bank come back to Nigeria with that American accent. You're going to have all these jobs at your disposal. Um, you know, that was the, the, that was like the types of conversations we were having. And then in the past two years, she, my mom specifically has been like really supportive. Just she sees that I've stuck with it because I started with a nutrition thing and now I'm doing a farming thing and I'm stuck with it. And then on top of sticking with it, you know, there'll be like an article randomly here and I'll send it to her. She's like, oh my God, I'm so proud. It's like, okay, you were not saying that before. <laughs> Think so. That's <laughs> so, always yeah. how it goes. <laughs> yeah. And for her, it could be like, it doesn't matter. Even if it's like a local Brooklyn paper that covered me, it's America. Like, she doesn't know the difference. It's just like somebody put my daughter in a paper. So, she must be doing something right. But yeah, that's been only like in the past like year or two, not that long. The rest of my family, they're still kind of like, they don't know what I do. It's weird that you would leave Nigeria to be a farmer in America. Like They can't wrap their mind around what I'm doing. The idea is that you come to America and then you just get like a, I don't know, whatever type of job, like a, I don't even know what's considered a, a 
Well, you become a I guess lawyer. Stevie Jobs would be like, yeah, like yeah, a lawyer, doctor, doctor, engineer. You know, the immigrant dream. Like, that's like, why you send your child abroad, right? It's so that they can come back a banker, a lawyer, engineer, doctor is a big one, mm-hmm. even nurse. But, you know, PhD, like, those are the things that, like, you know, immigrant parents want for their for their children mm-hmm. and honestly if I wasn't also an educator I think my mom would still be like what are you doing but I can say oh I teach and I teach farming and it sounds more logical you know mm. in undergrad I studied journalism so when I first came here my parents had planned that I would get a degree in economics and then I would go to law school that was a plan and then halfway through, I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. So I, <laughs> so I switched to journalism. And my mom was like, journalism, you want to write. Have you seen our journalist shoes? <laughs> she was like, you want to write. How many people do you know with money that right? I was like, what? It's like a profession. And I thought she would be like, oh, great profession. Like right, journalists, have you seen their shoes? They walk everywhere because they have no money. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> have you seen their shoes? That's hilarious. They walk everywhere because they have no money. And I was like, oh God. And I you know, initially I wanted to do creative writing, but I thought journalism would be like, you know, like a nice good, professional sounding major that should be going, yeah, good job. And she was like, No girl, don't do that go to law school so and then I got on a nutrition path I started out with holistic nutrition I started out at Reza and then I went to grad school um even then she was like I don't know what you're doing so my dad on the other hand has been like really for the most part he was supportive because I get that I'm just gonna do what I want from him and not sitting in the box, I that I got from him. So mm-hmm. I think he saw that in me and was like, yeah, you know, just do you. Yeah, there's always, like, one parent who's, like, super supportive and then one that's like, well, I don't know about that. Exactly. Like, what are you doing in America? I don't understand. She would say things like, you know, people come home from America and they're lawyers and they're doctors and they buy houses and, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. Thanks. That's so funny. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Yeah. Well, my father is like, you know, you can, my dad, I moved here with my dad when I was 16. Um, he taught in the New York City public school system while he was teaching in the school. He was teaching in East New York, uh, school in East New York. While he was there, he did all kinds of stuff, man. He started like this program where the kids got paid to fix computers and get training in IT. And then, um, as long as they maintained a C average, they got paid to fix, to pretty much be like I, part-time IT personnel wow. in the school. That's incredible. Yeah, and he was like, you know, and he came up with it because he felt like they don't care about school. They care about making money, mm-hmm. you know, and they're seeing drug dealers in their neighborhoods make money and you're asking them to come to school. Like, it makes no sense. Like, make school incentivize showing up in school you can't just tell young people who come from certain communities that they should just go to school because it's good for them they Mm -hmm. need to understand why and it needs to be tangible and they had a really supportive 
principal at his school. And he'd always come up with all these interesting things that made his students want to come to school and want to learn instead of being on the street. Do you think that's where you got your, like, you know, your type of education workshop, the way you structure your own workshops? Do you think that's kind of your dad kind of passed it on to you or like you got some of that knowledge from him? I think so too, very much. And just also being creative and not necessarily like following what you're supposed to to mm-hmm. do. You know, like his job was to teach math, right? That was his job. But he did all this other extra stuff because he felt it was going, in order for him to teach them math, his students needed to show up. And if you're going to get them to show up and get grades, then you need to make school attractive. Otherwise, they don't show up. So he did all this extra stuff that had nothing to do with teaching math. But then his students got good grades. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they were able to make like, you know, little $7 an hour or whatever <laughs> and show up in school. And a lot of them ended up going to college because of that. So I learned from him that you don't have to do wow. things inside the box. You can work outside of the box. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he was also lucky that he had it principal who got his vision and was supportive. It almost parallels your, when you were working on the rooftop, like you started working outside of the, outside of the box. I mean, the only difference is that you had, the support system wasn't the same, but it's, it's almost exactly what you're describing with your dad. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking about it now. And yeah, the same thing, except I didn't have that support system, but my dad always used to tell me, when I was in, I don't know, like 17, 18, he'd be like, you know, there are a thousand ways to skin a cat. <laughs> if you can't skin it one way, you find another way. You know, that's just the type of person that he is, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's great. When I, yeah, and when I became an adult, like that, those were the examples that I saw. Like, you don't have to do something the way everybody else is doing it. And you can do it, you know, Mm -hmm. differently, or you can do it in a way that makes sense to you. You know, if you're trying to get from point A to point B and getting on a bus is not working, then take the train. Just because everybody else is taking a bus doesn't mean you should take the bus too, you know? Take the train, maybe fly, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe walk, like find, you're you're all getting to the same place, destination in the end. It's just maybe you're taking a different route and it's okay. I love that. Do you think there's a stigma still for Black people uh, with farming? Not anymore. Mm-hmm. Not okay. well. I mean, I don't think it is anymore. I could be wrong. When I first started, I remember some of the clients at the place I was working would call the farm a plantation. Wow. And I used to be offended, like, excuse me. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it took me a while to be like, oh, this is where they're coming from. And then mm-hmm. I also had to adjust myself a little bit because I'm an immigrant, right? And I had to respect, mm-hmm. like, the history of mm-hmm. farming in America, especially mm-hmm. for African-Americans. Like, that comes with a lot of trauma and oppression. And I, re- I had to, like, do my homework. and. um I would go to conferences and meet young people 
who were into farming and they would say things, especially young people from the South, and they would say things like, yeah, like we, most of our friends don't care about it. Our families don't care about it. They see, you know, like, why would you want to do that type of work? It's oppressive. But that was like, what, 10 years ago? I think that there's been a shift because a lot of people are becoming aware that, you know, eating healthily could make a difference in your health. Right. People, a lot of people in low income communities are suffering from diabetes and heart disease and even like asthma, all this like environmental pollution and working in a garden can change that. Growing your own food can change that. People are seeking like solace in the land, literally. So I think there's a huge shift that's happened. We're all also more aware about the organic food and why it's good for you and so on and so forth. And there's so many people doing great work to change their perception. People in Detroit, in Milwaukee, in California, in all places around the country that are changing that. So I think there's a there's been a huge shift. Even in Nigeria, there's a shift. Really? They're, yeah, there are young people going wow. into farming now, which is blowing my mind. Because that is not, yeah, that is in, in, I left in 1996. So like 20 years ago, 22 years ago when I left, no one would ever think about going into farming as a profession. And now my cousin, I met a friend of my cousin's who lives in Nigeria, who says she has a cashew farm. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she's what, 30? Has a cashew farm. I'm just like hearing of so many young people in Nigeria who like people are fish farming. Young people are like doing um hydroponics. I'm following um, really some really interesting farmers on Instagram. It's, so there is a shift that's happening. That's good to know because I think the only way things can actually change is if more people are being drawn into this profession. Yeah. The more, the better. I mean, for someone, let's say someone is like, oh, I kind of th- I think I want to start a farm or I want to start an aquaponics farm. What would you say to them to get them started? Or is there any advice that you would give them about getting started? Well, the first thing I would say is actually spend some time on a farm. Mm-hmm. It's so important. Spend time, even if it's like showing up on weekends, but spend a full season just to make sure that it's something you actually want to do. I meet so many people who have started farms and have no idea what it involves. Spend some time, get to know a farmer, like go to a farm regularly, you know, for even if it's once a day per season, because I understand not everyone else can like quit their jobs and go, you know, work or live on a farm. But whatever way you can be involved with a farm, do that first. And do it for like a full season to make sure it is what you want to do. Because there's no point like putting all your time and energy and effort into something. And then you realize that, wow, this is too hard. I can't do it. And then the second thing I would say is like, if you're sure it is what you want to do, then the next thing you need to do is, you know, find out what resources are where you live for farmers. So in New York City, we have an organization called Grow NYC that runs a beginner farmer program. And that beginner farmer program literally supports new farmers, helps you with a business plan. They connect you with land upstate. You know, they become a resource for you. You also learn like 
They provide you with like, you can take workshops outside. of It's a nine week program where you get to develop your business plan and really get to think about what type of farmer you want to be, the type of farm you want to create, and they'll support you in doing that and help you create like a real business plan that you can put into action. They connect you to resources to get loans, to get land. Find out who in your, where you live provides that service because that's really important. You don't want to go into it alone. I don't know if like organizations like Grow and YC exist outside of New York. I, I only know in New York. I know that they help you get where. There's usually, you can like contact the USDA, whatever their like local chapter is where you live. I'm sure local chapter is not the right term, but that's what I'm using. <laughs> and they'll direct you, you know, everyone, every state has their own USDA office. And you say, hey, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. And they'll direct you to who to talk to and where to go. That's the first thing. I mean, those are good first steps for someone who start who wants to start out. Thank you for that. Um, what what has farming taught you about yourself? Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm trying to think. Well, it showed me how stubborn I am because <laughs> mm. it has been a really challenging path just to be able to make, you know, a career in New York and I'm stuck mm. with it, you know, and I don't know this thing about me, stickability, I can like really stick to something and do it. It's taught me mm. that about myself. It's also taught me to, I don't know how to say this, trust my instincts, but it's more than trusting my instinct. I don't know how to, to say it. I know more than I think I know. Mm. You know, like I don't mm -hmm. need a book to tell me something. And I've learned that. Like I will, I spend a lot of time in my farm. I live and breathe that space. I know everything. Uh, and I know things instinctively. And then I doubt myself. And then I go back and I read somewhere. I read something that validates what I already know. So I'm learning that I have good instincts and it's okay to follow it. I've learned that I don't need to know science to be able to do this work. <laughs> you know, you know, there's, I used to feel really insecure. I don't have a normal farming background. You know, most people will go spend a year, an entire year on a farm and work on a farm. i never did that. I spent four weeks and then I traveled a little bit. And I've just been like following my instinct, you know, and I'm learning things now that I didn't even, I know things now that I sometimes don't even realize that I know until someone says, wow, you're doing such a great job because you did this thing and this thing and this thing. And I'll go, oh, I was just, <laughs> I was just kind of doing what seems right or sounds right. So that's just the thing is like, wow, I have really good instinct and I should follow it more, not only in farming, but in other aspects of my life. <laughs> in life. In life. Yeah, yeah. In life. Always, always trust your instincts. So that's what, yeah, um, always. Yeah. That's what I've discovered about myself. And I also discovered this love of nature that honestly, if you'd ask me at 16 years old or even 20, if I love nature, I would be like, what? <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm a city girl. I was born and raised in a city. In, I, I grew up in Nigeria, in Lagos. And then I came to New York. It's like, what is nature? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I just, you know, but who knew that I had this thing in me? Because the moment I started growing food, I was like, oh, my God, I love this. This is amazing. This is great. It makes sense. It's what I should be doing. Um, yeah, I have this immense um, just love for nature and not necessarily in the way that people think like, oh, going to nature in a mountain, you know, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> just like growing plants and watching plants. I'm the kind of person that when I'm walking now on the street, I'm looking at like every single plant that's growing, mm-hmm. you know, that's nature to me. All the weeds that are growing in the cracks, I'm like looking at it like, wow, that's amazing. I can't believe that's growing in a crack. I wonder what plant it is. I wonder like, wow, plants are so resilient. They're amazing. You know, that's how I see the world now. Like I don't need to be on a mountain in order to like feel nature. It's like right there in New York City next to the <laughs> next to the dog poop. <laughs> it's all like <laughs> it's all nature. It's all nature, you know? Like, I notice things now, like the trees, and it's cold, but the um, the trees are blooming, and I, I, you know, like, I can look in the ground and be like, it's spring. You become more observant. Yeah, I can tell. So much more observant of just the nature around me. And I, and that's, who would have thought, like, me of all people, I use a drill now, but I can use a saw <laughs> and saw. Like, all of these things that never before. Why would I pick up a drill for what? <laughs> That's amazing. But I just, I know. And now I just instinctively do it because it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even think about it. Something needs to be done. It means something needs to be screwed down. I pick up the drill. And I do it. I wouldn't have done it before. Like, I would think a drill is for, like, it's for a man. It's not for me. You know, that's the way I used to think. And I don't think like that anymore. That's great. What's the best way, you know, people can support your farm or a farm like yours? Like, what what do you want from people? Whether that be volunteering or fine, like anything, what, what, what's the best way for people to support so you? The best way to support is just to like come take a tour of the farm. Okay. It's a small space, so we don't really need a lot of volunteers, honestly. But come visit, you know, come with a friend, come with your family, come see what we do, and then talk about it. You know, come check out this weird place next to a liquor store. And a tobacco shop that grows food. <laughs> Come check it out. <laughs> awesome. And uh, where can people learn more about your farm? Um, or Oko Farms, I should say. On our website, www.okofarms.com. Mm-hmm. And do you have any social media accounts? We do. Instagram is where we're most active. And that's Oko Farms, at Oko Farms. And, um, we're also on Twitter, but not that much. At Twitter, at Oka Farms, on all the social platforms. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. This has been like an amazing conversation. I've learned so much, and 
yeah, just thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for like reaching out and choosing to talk to me. Thank you. I super appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. Many thanks to Yemi Amo for this engaging conversation and for her ongoing work. You can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Anchor. Please subscribe, like, and share, and visit us at The Groundwork Pod on Instagram and at thisisthegroundwork.com. Our music is by Lee Rosevere.